Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. The initiative is at a point where it can be a leader in defining what, in fact, African-American art history is in terms of scholarship and practice for the 21st century. In this episode, I speak with Getty curator Laron Brooks and Columbia University professor Kelly Jones about the Getty's new African-American art history initiative. On September 25th, 2018, the Getty Research Institute announced its African-American Art History Initiative. This bold project includes a dedicated curatorship in African-American art history, a bibliographer devoted to building library resources, annual graduate and postgraduate research fellowships, oral histories, and a campaign to acquire the archives of artists, art historians, and critics important to the history of African-American art. A year later, in partnership with the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture and the Ford, Mellon, and MacArthur Foundations, the Getty acquired the photographic archive of the Johnson Publishing Company, the Chicago-based publisher of Ebony and Jet magazines. I recently sat down to discuss this initiative with Laurent Brooks, the Getty Research Institute's Associate Curator for Modern and Contemporary Collections, and Kelly Jones, Columbia University Professor in Art History and Archaeology, and in the Institute for Research in African American Studies, also at Columbia, and Senior Consultant on the Getty's initiative. Thank you, Kelly and Laurent, for speaking with me this morning on the podcast about the Getty Research Institute's African-American Art History Initiative. Now, Laurent, you joined the Getty in 2019, a little more than a year ago, to help build the initiative. What was the charge given you at the time? Well, the charge was to begin building the the collection, the archival collection of African-American artists, and to start thinking about the kinds of programs that we would want to run as part of the initiative to sort of bolster the awareness of the initiative around the country and and to uh, make a real substantive change to the field of African-American art, but also American art. Why was it important to gather archive materials? Because we need to do research. And the, the Getty uh, Research Institute is one of the premier art history research libraries in the world. And so to have the materials of African-American artists, and specifically primary materials for scholars and students, would actually uh, change the field. What are primary materials? Primary materials are the kinds of materials from the artists and the thinkers themselves, the kinds of firsthand documents that they left behind or that they're still making. And, you know, they're crucial to any kind of substantive research from dissertations to books to articles. And they add uh, a voice of authenticity to the kinds of materials that change the field and we can sort of build on to uh, accumulate the histories of, of the greatest thinkers and artists. Yeah. Now, the GRI, that's what we call the Getty Research Institute here, has a number of similar initiatives to help advance the study of the history of art, some of which date to the founding of the Getty in the mid-1980s. Why was the African-American Art History Initiative established only recently? Well, you know, the way I look at it, it's actually part of a larger movement towards civil rights. I mean, people think about the civil rights movement as ending in the 1960s, but a lot of the institutions that trains art historians, especially African-American art historians, really didn't start accepting black students into graduate programs until the 1960s. And so if we think about the civil rights movement as actually reaching a sort of climax in the 1960s, you know, those scholars were young, and so if you think about the 1980s and 90s and the criticism and the ways in which these scholars entered 
American institutions to begin changing the kinds of criticism and the kinds of writings of art histories in terms of the books, in terms of the articles, in terms of a sort of scholarly momentum. Uh, I think we're still in the, the wake of that scholarly momentum. It's 2020, but we're still very early in the kinds of revolutionary uh, institution building around the best of American thought. And if we gather the best of American thought, we cannot leave out the voices of African-American artists. Now, Kelly, you're a senior consultant on the initiative. How would you answer that same question? Why the initiative now? Ron just encapsulated it for me. Just to reiterate, in some ways, you know, if you think of some of the people that began teaching this, the ideas of Af- around African American artists, some of the very first places were historically black colleges and universities, particularly Howard University and Spelman College. And you have people like James Porter at Howard, who really writes one of the first books about African-American artists. You have somebody like David Driscoll being trained in this place. Then he goes on to go to Fisk. He trains not only scholars there, but then eventually at University of Maryland. But he also is training artists like Terry Atkins, for instance. He has a great, great, great influence on many people. You Look at places like Yale University with Robert Ferris Thompson, who we're getting his library here to the Getty. And I'm so excited about that. But he trained so many people. He starts in the 1960s to Laurent's point. So you really see even African art as a discipline really isn't seen as art history until the 60s. From that, you also have civil rights movements, as Laurent is saying, late 60s, where people are not only want civil rights and voting rights um, in the 60s, but that's when you see the start of African-American studies programs, which is how we really get to African-American artists. Myself, when I went to Amherst College, I actually made up my own major, which was what? Art history, African-American studies, and Latin American studies. And it's still what I'm doing today, all those mm-hmm. years ago, but I actually had to make it up. How did I do that? I did a lot of independent study courses. I actually came to California, to the Bay Area, and I studied at San Francisco State University, also with Angela Davis, who was teaching there at the time. I went to South America. I studied Latin American art history in South America to do that. What was I reading? I was reading David Driscoll. Two Centuries of Black American Artists, which was actually a catalog from LACMA and Mm. Samella Lewis. These are two people who had projects here in Los Angeles. So I think it's, it's really interesting to think about how part of the history of really spreading uh, the work of African American artists, or at least the study of it, came from Los Angeles. Would you think of yourself as being in the second generation of scholars of African American art history? Is it that young? Maybe second or third, because there are a whole generation like Judith Wilson before me, the late Sylvia Boone, who was an Africanist, who was also before me. So there are people, but it's fairly young. It's fairly young. And then to be able to move out into other venues, I think early on, people who did this work had many jobs. James Porter, going back to him, and Driscoll, great examples. They were artists. They were scholars. They were gallerists. Mm -hmm. By the time it gets to me, I got rid of the artist part. I'm like, no, 
because I grew up with people like Jack Whitten and Mel Edwards and Howard Dean and Pindell. I don't need to really <laughs> go <laughs> down that road. So I really started out as a gallerist, or not a gallerist, somebody who is a curator working in nonprofits and museums, and also a scholar. So I still had two jobs. Now you can see people like Huey Copeland, Krista Thompson, Bridget Cooks, even though these people may dabble in exhibitions, and I don't say that in a bad way, they're trained as scholars. And so people can actually have one job. You can actually be in a museum. Another example is Ashley James, who just went to the Guggenheim. Uh, You don't have to do it all. Uh, I think when you're building a small field like this, you're doing it all because you believe, as Laurent pointed out so astutely, this is part of civil rights. I was also raised by artists. If art is not civil rights, there is no civil rights. <laughs> if poetry is not civil rights, civil rights doesn't exist. That's the way they look at it. So um, it was always part of that. Yeah. Now, as I heard you describe your development as an art historian, uh, I, I was thinking that the African-American art history was taught uh, as a kind of independent study pro- program before it became a discipline and when did it become a discipline? Because it sounded as if you were sort of making your major together. You were cobbling up together from different parts of the curriculum. Absolutely, I was. And the great thing about my alma mater, Amherst College, which I love dearly, is that they had something called an interdisciplinary degree. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this. Because why? Why did I have to do that? Because in art history, at a small college like that, to give them credit, They're not a university. They can't afford to teach the full range of art history. Um, But also, I think, on the other side of that, African-American studies is a multidisciplinary field. African-American studies encompasses history, sociology, political science, literature, fine arts, music. Keep going. I mean, it is the Because the discipline demands that because the the questions have to be answered that way or because the structure of of the faculty... Requires that. Well, when you're saying, you know, European studies, what would that be, right? Would that not be history, music, art? When you're saying classical studies, it is a multidisciplinary type of endeavor. When you're saying Slavic studies, is it just literature? No. Mm -hmm. So African-American studies has always been multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary in that way. You know, we have great artists, and it didn't hurt that I grew up with some of these great artists. I was studying art history in in high school, and, you know, all the people of color were ancient. They were Mayans, right? They were Egyptians. But I went to a public arts high school in New York. You know, it was a lot of people of color there. But somehow the 20th century was not represented. And you kind of figure, but wait a minute. I know Jack Whitten. I know Mel Edwards. I know Howard Dean Pindell. I know William T. Williams. How is this not a part of history? So I began to ask myself that question, and I didn't want to be an artist because I said, these people are broke, I'm not doing that. And then I said, oh, wow, you know, I can be a curator. So tell us more about your background and your training. What was your family life like? Well, I grew up around a lot of artists, you know, mm-hmm. you grow up in How'd a that village. happen? Well, they, they had fun, and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> They do what artists and people all over the world and, you know, humanity and animals and, you know, they've got songs about that. Um, So, yeah, but it was a great privilege. I often get asked 
by many students and others, if I don't have a family background in the arts, can I not do this? I said, absolutely not. Just because I was raised by those people, luckily I went to school. I also have, you know, a PhD mm-hmm. and an undergraduate degree in these areas. So you can do that to become an expert on the yeah, field. Yeah. Now, Laurent, you got your PhD from City University of New York much more recently than Kelly. How did the discipline change from the time uh, Kelly was a student and when you were in graduate school? My trajectory toward graduate school was in a way similar to Kelly's, even though I didn't grow up in, I grew up in a family of artisans from Alabama, quilt makers and seamstresses and carpenters. I went to Hunter to be a painter and to study with the photographer Roy DeCarava. I always surrounded myself with artists uh, before I was an art historian. But then when I went to the Graduate Center, I specifically wanted to study with Rob Storr, who was there teaching courses. Specifically, the methodology of the Graduate Center at that time, the art uh, history department, was primary materials. And so it was less theoretical and more about getting primary materials uh, as the basis for your writing, especially your dissertation. So, you know, my uh, involvement in gathering primary materials for the Getty now is an extension of the emphasis that was placed on me in graduate schools, getting those primary materials about Hale Woodruff. And so I had to read all the Du Bois' letters to find Hale Woodruff. But, you know, to do work in African-American art history, you, it's, it's almost like we're always the first. Even in this 2020, you do a dissertation on Hale Woodruff, you do a dissertation on William T. Williams. It was still in the era of the first person or the first people to write singular documents around the artist that Kelly was referencing uh, and an artist before them. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about African-American art history, uh, but of course there are other African diasporic art histories, be they in the Caribbean or in uh, Europe. So how are those histories being taught in, in Britain, for example, or in Europe elsewhere? And how does that differ from how it, the African-American art history is being taught in this country? Well, the art of the As- African diaspora is a wide-ranging field Our new department at Columbia is African-American and African diaspora studies. There are other departments like at Harvard, which are African and African-American studies. Uh, So in general, we like to encompass the whole world. I do teach a course called uh, Black British Art and Theory, which I've taught since the beginning of my teaching career. It's now kind of expanded to be a Black Europe course, but some of the people who are teaching specifically in that area would be Eddie Chambers, who teaches at uh, University of Texas at Austin. You have people like Krista Thompson at Northwestern University, whose focus is Caribbean. In Europe, I think they're still catching up to teaching this material, but I think here in the United States, We actually have been teaching that material for a bit longer. And even when I was in college, my study was with people who were Africanists. My study was with people who talked about the African diaspora, you know, that there are Africans in Latin America and people of African descent. So I think the study of the diaspora has always been around, even if we go back to those people at Howard University and at Spelman, you know, these schools are set up in the 19th century. They have alumni who are going and traveling, who are missionaries. So they were already aware of the diaspora, of course, and writing about it, making art about it, 
uh, even somebody like James Porter, all these people travel to like Haiti, different places. So I think it's it's always been a part of the study here in terms of African-American studies and in terms of African-American art history. It's just now coming to light to a kind of broader public. Yeah. I know that there's an oral history project that Spellman is undertaking with uh, a particular island community in the Caribbean. Uh, and so that gets me back to the question about the African-American Art History Initiative here at the Getty uh, the, the concentration on primary materials in the development of the art history of African-Americans. We're still at the stage of gathering the primary materials. How is that possible? And what's the trajectory, do you think, for the development of the, of the program? I think the development is bright. As with so many things that I've experienced as a scholar of African-American art history and culture and African diaspora art history and culture, there's always more than you think. You think, oh, we'll just get a few papers. What? There's like, you know, you scratch the surface and there's so much. And I I learned that from Robert Ferris Thompson. The good news is that we have many people who are still with us. Um, People like, again, William T. Williams and Mel Edwards, who are of that generation, Mary Lovelace O'Neill. Then we have people like Lorna Simpson and Kara Walker, who are going to be able to start contributing to archives here. Uh, hopefully in the future. So I think the future is bright. We just uh, need to keep at it and know that there is so much out there. Sometimes it's almost unimaginable. And to Kelly's point, in gathering these archives, what I've realized is that a lot of these materials are vulnerable. I taught in an Africana studies department for around 10 years. Art historian, my PhD is in art history, but I also taught in an um, Africana studies department. And one of the things I realized in just going to the the places where these materials are kept before they, they get here, the economic vulnerability of a lot of the artists who did not receive their due in the 1970s is reflected in the, the um, how can I put this, in the fragile nature of their archival material. And so when I go into these particular spaces, I'm confronted by histories of neglect in the scholarship that led to the kind of neglect that the materials are in now. And so in 2020, I think that we are lucky to see the kinds of materials that that are left. We're lucky to see that. How easy is it to gather this material today? And how easy is it going to be for the Getty to do so? Is there a matter of trust that needs to be built between artist and institution? The fundamental thing about collecting archives or acquiring archives through donation or acquisition is that you have to build a personal relationship with the person. Uh, because in the case of Robert Ferris Thompson, who I was working with at Yale to gather some materials to come here, it's about their relationship to the, to the things that they've collected in his case for over 50 years. Yeah. I want to get back to Robert uh, Ferris Thompson in a second, but mm. I want to get to the start of the initiative and the beginnings of the building of the archives. And the first archive that we acquired, I believe, under the auspices of the African American Art History Initiative is Betty Sarr's archive. Tell us about that and how important it is. Well, you know, it's, it's Betty Sarr, of course, is one of the greatest artists of the 20th and uh, 21st centuries. And her archive is, is, it's going to be foundational for the kinds of things that we hope to do here, uh, sketchbooks, all kinds of personal material that reflect on her life, uh, but also her career and her participation in the arts, especially in California. The kinds of production that she's still doing, even at 93, you know, once we have all of her material here, it's going to lead to a sort of renaissance and scholarship, I think. Yeah. What about other artists of that generation? How likely are they to be uh, willing to give their archive or for us to acquire their archive? Do they understand the ambition and goal of the Art History Initiative? I think they do. 
And we've known many of them for many years. I think, as Lamron pointed out, it's really about developing a personal relationship with people about this. I've had personal relationships for many years with these people, but also I've done shows with them. So that's a different kind of relationship you're into with somebody. When you're talking about acquiring one aspect of their life's work, uh, I think it's a different kind of conversation and it's more sustained, but I think it's really exciting. When we invited artists here about a year ago, a bunch of artists just to come and tour uh, the site, the archives, look at some of the materials like the Betty Sar archive that we're already acquiring here. I think people were so excited and moved by the fact that African-American artists were now able to be a part of important archives that would put their names in the future. And I think this is, in some ways, a new feeling, but it's one also, as you pointed out, um, it's a, a relationship that needs to be cultivated, and I think we're on our way to doing that. Yeah. Uh, so, so these are artists that uh, you, we had invited here and we had had conversations with. And the first archive was an archive of an artist. But now we have Robert Ferris Thompson, who's an art historian, a cultural historian and art historian. Is the plan to build an archive center for the study of African-American art history to include both artists and art historians? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think these are two major archives. <laughs> We're not starting out small here. Of course not. Betty saw a major figure, not only globally, but in Los Angeles, certainly. Robert Ferris Thompson, also a signature figure in the teaching of African diaspora art history, African-American art history, African art history. These are major archives. They're both 50 years or more of materials. I think as the first two acquisitions, that really sends a message to people of the ambition that we have for this initiative. Yeah. Uh, Laurent, tell us what's in the Robert Ferris Thompson archive. Uh, his, his notebooks, we also acquired his library, his records, CDs, years of slides, personal correspondence, just brilliance. I mean, 50 years of just travel, of engagement with ideas across the diaspora, meaning the, the Caribbean to the continent of Africa, Nigeria, all over. It's a massive record of an extremely brilliant and active mind. I've been told that there wasn't an exhibition at the Studio Museum in Harlem or a studio in Harlem that wasn't accessible to him that he didn't go to, that he didn't participate in. You know, uh, he speaks four languages over dinner. He <laughs> uh, he goes from his memories of Jean-Michel Basquiat when they were having lunch in a, a Spanish restaurant in the Lower East Side. And then the next minute he's in the Congo speaking Key Congo. And the next minute we're exchanging poems to one another just on a pad of paper. And so just to keep up with the kind of brilliance and the kind of production he's had over his, his life and the kind of person he is, I, I think – his materials open up just a whole other aspect of thinking about the African diaspora and our place in it. Yeah. Now, Kelly, you're a special advisor to the initiative. How do you see it developing over the coming years? Well, I think I'm excited to see it grow and people start to come and use it. I think also, you know, we can have young scholars who are in this field help with the development of 
the archive in many ways, not just use it once it's here, because we know that's taking a little bit of time, but to begin to have people who are doing this work here and advising the initiative, giving us ideas, you know, in terms of when they give their talks here, whatever it is. So I just see it as the beginning of a something that's really exciting and great to have it be in Los Angeles and at the Getty. How will it differ from the Archives of American Art or the, or the Schomburg Center? And if it will differ, or, or even if it doesn't differ, what relationships will we build with them? Well, I think it will differ because the Getty is a, is a quite different place. I mean, it's perhaps closer uh, to the idea of the Smithsonian in that it has museums, uh, but it also has a conservation institute. I think that's also very key in terms of acquiring certain things. How do we learn how to preserve these things. I think that's going to be something very important that the Getty has uh, that these other institutions don't. Uh, the Schomburg, of course, is historic. It's one of the first libraries. You know, I always say that Arturo Schomburg, who was a Puerto Rican who started this, he's a black person from the diaspora who started collecting things about the African diaspora. And he was among the first people to say, Black Lives Matter. And this is why, and start collecting these things. So I think these things are all slightly different, but what's great is that we can all collaborate. Collaboration has started, I think, in the 21st century, certainly uh, when we're talking about portals and sharing information electronically and digitally, um, these are going to be great partners to have. And to add to Kelly's point, we are specifically an art research library. As opposed to the Schomburg, which is literature and history. Right. So they're more generalists. And so we we talk about uh, the best of thinking around the world globally in terms of what art history is. We are specifically art historians and curators here dealing with art historical material. And that's a specialty that is a significant difference to a lot of other collecting institutions. Do you have a wish list already? (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do. But can't say it on the podcast. (laughs) I do. So, so we've been talking about the African-American Art History Initiative at the Getty in terms of building archives, which is extremely important as we've been talking about. Um, but what else might it comprise? So the uh, initiative also will include partnerships with uh, institutions to mentor young uh, curators and young art historians, but it also will uh, include uh, oral histories and um, the kinds of symposiums and uh, conferences um, that will actually address the state of the field. The initiative is at a point where it can be a leader in defining what, in fact, African-American art history is in terms of scholarship and practice for the 21st century. There's also publications that Mm -hmm. go along with this as well. Now, one of the recent acquisitions the Getty's made as part of this initiative and together with the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture and the Ford Mellon and MacArthur Foundations is the archive of the Johnson Publishing Company. Laurent and Kelly, tell us about the archive, what's in it, why it's important for the Getty to have been a part of the consortium that acquired it, what's the future of it? Well, one of the things that was very clear to me when I accepted the job at the Getty is that the Getty can do things that other institutions maybe cannot do. And so acquiring on a scale that actually matters. Uh, Tell us what the archive is, what it comprises. The archive contains more than 70 years of the kinds of materials that define black culture. 4.8 million images, uh, negatives, prints, 
It is the brain, the, the brain of black culture in the 20th century. It is a massive archive of just the visual representation of black people globally in the 20th century. And it's just massive. It's, it's more than one can take in in a month of sitting with it. This is the first time I could say that and right now realize the scale of what I'm saying. Uh, for those who don't know what the Johnson Publishing Company was, what was it and why is the archive so important? Well, uh, John H. Johnson began the uh, Johnson Publishing Company in 1942-43. And so it was during the time of segregation. And so the Johnson Publishing Company, on the one hand, was one of the most prolific black publishing houses uh, in the world. But the backdrop of that was segregation, American segregation. People may be more familiar with like life and the other kinds of publications that told visual narratives of what it meant to be American. Um, Black people weren't necessarily represented in those what we'd like to call too easily, right, mainstream American visual culture. So when we deal with the Johnson Publishing Company, we're dealing with magazines like Ebony and Jet. And these uh, magazines were all in the material culture of black homes for affirmation, a sense of where we are in the world, a sense of the first achievers. And so when we wanted to find out, even by surprise, okay, there's a new black CEO of a company, we just opened Jet and just be affirmed that there is such a thing as in popular culture, we call it like black excellence. But it, it, it's a thing to whereas, <laughs> it's a thing to whereas, you know, when we see uh, people achieving despite, despite the hurdles and and all of the, the the sort of shortcomings that prevent specifically African Americans from achieving what it is that they've earned. And so when we see Ebony and Jet and Johnson Publishing Company, Johnny Johnson, I think he was a genius. And so just that kind of proliferation over 73, 75 years of this material that affirmed black life and specifically the visual storytelling that was in these periodicals was second to none. Yeah. And Kelly, uh, I know that it's only been a few months since we acquired this thing and we're still trying to uh, understand what it is and what it comprises and what can be made of it. Uh, but there's going to be an advisory committee. You'll be on the advisory committee that will help uh, direct the future of this archive. What do you see in that future? Well, as always, more than meets the eye. I mean, first of all, it is exactly everything that Laurent said. He characterized it so well. And then we find out it's 4.8 million images. What does that mean? There's also, we know, paper along with that and other kinds of written archives. There's going to be so much there. We'll be mining for decades and decades and centuries maybe. I mean, it's an amazing encapsulation that goes from um, people in a segregated world uh, to chronicling civil rights, to chronicling Brown versus Board of Education when segregation is, you know, legally dismantled. So many amazing things that happened. African independence and how that affected African Americans and, and the world. There's always more to African American culture than is ever discussed or known. So the facilities of the Getty will be a great place to unpack all this. And I think it's fitting in many ways, first of all, the wonderful partnerships uh, that we've entered into, which is also part of the initiative with Ford, Mellon, um, MacArthur, and the Getty to get this done. But how fitting for John Johnson, who had a vision of really chronicling African-American life and also doing it visually, the use of the photograph, to be a part of a center that is set up for that, 
by a person who also believed in that too. So these kind of personalities kind of coming together in in some ways. But I, I think it's going to be truly exciting, and I just can't wait to dig into that. I remember a time in studying art history when it would be unlikely that a photographic journalistic archive would be important to the, the understanding of the art of the time. What is that link between the photographic journalistic archive and the art of the time? Well, in the case of Johnson Publications, he hired some of the top photographers of the day. And the reason we don't hear more about them in some ways is because he owned everything. They didn't own their own images when they were working for him. Now, it was great for Ebony Jet, but somebody like a Monita Sleet is, you know, amazing. The iconic pictures of Martin Luther King. This is how we know Martin Luther King's passing through these images. But beyond that, I think there's so many images that we haven't seen by these great photographers because they were in this archive. And so we'll be able to get a handle on these. And then there's some, you know, surprising images by people who are literary scholars or politicians who also take up the camera and make beautiful images. I think to your point, Jim, about, you know, this is a journalistic archive. I think photography in and of itself really, like African-American studies, comes into its own in the 60s as an art form. I mean, you have these people like Edward Weston and Steichen and Strand and all these people. But I think the discipline saying this is actually art is actually fairly young in and of itself. And I see the Johnson Archive having that impact on how we really understand what a photographic archive is. I think it's actually going to change how we understand what photography is in some ways. Yeah, and so the two Pulitzer Prizes on the staff photographers for the Johnson Plumpson Company. And when we talk about African-American photography, we're talking about an art form that was wed to political momentum. You know, we can think about Weston and the kind of aesthetics, the, the photography of aesthetics. But when we talk about Ebony Jet, we're talking about the best photographers actually using their art form to be political and move the civil rights movement. And so on the one hand, we have beautiful photographs, composition, all the things we appreciate in art history in terms of formalism and that kind of stuff. But then we also have the political momentum of the people that are captured. So Manetta Sleet Jr., the picture of um, Coretta Scott King at the, at the funeral of Martin Luther King, he's right there uh, with the family. He's traveling with them. He's intimate in, in that particular scene, but it's a beautiful photograph in terms of composition, but it also is tied to the political movements that pushed um, the kinds of agendas that is making civil rights more and more and more possible. Another aspect of it as well, which is, again, kind of something we didn't think about, is how many contemporary artists have used these images Mm -hmm. in their work. Tell us about that. Lorna Simpson. Hank Willis Thomas. You can just keep going. Right. Mm-hmm. Theaster Gates now, mm-hmm. big project that's moving around. Micheline Thomas, you know, is doing these beautiful pictures of, of black women. And she talks about where does she first start looking and getting inspired on poses and stuff. It's Jet, Ebony, and, mm-hmm. and other magazines, which I won't mention here. Mm-hmm. But it's really kind of a substrate of so much imagery that we see among artists. And we don't even realize that. Now, in reading different things about various artists, when I come across that word, 
in their interviews, it has a whole different resonance. I mean, before we'd say, oh, yeah, of course, because it's a popular magazine. Now that we know there's an archival source, how has that archive and those photographic images, which to your point were journalistic, they had a different feel to them for art historians, actually have created such an impact in the world of contemporary art. And and we also want to see how they are really parallel to something like how Andy Warhol is using popular images of civil mm-hmm. rights movement to make images himself. I mean, when we think about American identity, we can think about in terms of popular culture, Motown. We can think of all of these institutions that were generated by a certain kind of black uh, entrepreneurship of the 20th century. And so when we think about Ebony Jet, it was also in that same kind of spirit. What is the best of America and how do black people in America represent the best of what America is? And so when we think about the photographs uh, inside of uh, Ebony and Jet and then periodicals, what we get to see are the editorial choices. But once we get into the archive, we see the contact sheets around these amazing images. And having seen many of the contact sheets around some of the most famous photographs, what I can say is that once we allow scholars into the archive to see the totality of the scene, I think it would have a real substantive effect. Yeah, it gets back to the point that it is it comprises 4.8 million photographs, and then on the backs of many of them, there's interesting material. So let's say it's maybe 7 million. It's going to take us a long time to digitize and process all this material. So we shouldn't uh, get people too excited about seeing it too soon. <laughs> but there's going to be some time in the, in the coming years in which it's going to be possible to see at least some of it. How, how anxious are you about that? I'm very excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, 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 can't fit too many words into just saying very simply, I'm very Can we excited. say that it was maybe on the first day of the job here at the Getty in which we began talking about acquiring this archive, that you, your first day on the job? <laughs> no, it was actually the third week. You know, yeah. The third week. You know, the third week. Uh, you thought things like this happened all the time. All the time. Well, obviously, you know, all the time. You know, but, you know, what, what – and so what does it mean to be inside of historical moment? You know, just in terms of realizing the capacity of the Getty to be a steward of archives around the world, as, as you know, right? Around the world, to be a steward of these different kinds of materials that would be lost if it wasn't for the initiatives that the Getty has. And the African-American Art History Initiative is an initiative that is meant to actually do the kinds of work that no other place can do but the Getty. Yeah. We should emphasize that we have good partners, as mentioned yes. earlier. Yes. Uh, so this is going to be a joint uh, effort, right. but it's going to take some time to get it organized and get it processed and make it available available to the public. Anyway, thank you both so much for being with me in the podcast this morning and chatting about all of this. It's a very exciting moment in the history of the Getty, and we're glad that you're a part of it. Thank you. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman, with audio production by Gideon Brower, and mixing by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, Write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.